is Queen Victoria. Welcome to The Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't just discuss one serial killer, I discuss several serial killers and something they have in common. This is another installment in the series about families that kill together. In this episode, I will be discussing the Harp Brothers and Andrus Pandy. I will note that I had been fighting laryngitis because of lovely allergies, so I apologize if I sound a little bit hoarse. I appreciate your patience. I know it's been a little bit since I've come out with an episode, but um, I actually had completely lost it (laughs) for a little bit. Um, It's come back, but it's still a little shaky sometimes. I will do the best that I can, and and I appreciate your patience with me. The Harp Brothers had a nine-month killing spree in 1798. They could prove about five of them, but they were estimated to have actually killed about 20 to 40 people. They primarily went through Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois, North Carolina, Virginia. They went all over the place. My main references, The Harp's Last Rampage, The True Story of America's First Serial Killers by E. Don Harp. And I will take a moment to note that this specific spelling is H-A-R-P-E, even for Don's last name. He apparently was related to them, but surprisingly enough, his family didn't really like to talk much about it. But despite them, he went ahead and wrote a book about it. And you can tell he did a lot of research. I enjoyed reading it. It was more um, dry and factual, which is great and fine when you're looking for factual things. Um, And I make that, bring that up specifically because another reference of mine is called A Wilderness of Tigers, A Novel of the Harp Brothers and Frontier Violence by Kenneth Tucker. His is what he calls a work of faction, F-A-C-T-I-O-N. And uh, he claims that uh, I had actually never heard that before. I don't remember hearing that before. He mentions it at the end of the book in context of um, Alex Haley's Roots, that when it was first popular, you would often hear it described as faction, which means... And I quote, that is, the book was neither fiction nor history, but a fusion of the two. So what that boils down to is it reads like a novel. It reads like a fiction story from someone's point of view where things are happening and it has facts thrown in there, but not everything should be taken as fact. And it's more to give you a good picture of how things would be and anything put in there is not meant to take away from it or to twist information or mislead it's meant to be in the vein of how things would have been based on all the information that they have he does point out that the main character in the book was a real character that was involved in the story (laughs) was a real guy that was involved with the history but he expanded his role and basically made him like um the narrator of the book so while this guy was not actually as active as he paints in the book, it still gives you a good idea of how things actually went. And there are some things in there that you can tell, and from research, you know are actually are valid. But I will get more into that here in a little bit. Another reference I found was America's First Serial Killers, a biography of the Harp Brothers by Wallace Edwards. It was nice to have three different books to go off of, because obviously you can see the different information in each one and it was nice to contrast and compare especially since as i stated some are more factual and some are more like a story i did of course cross-reference with other reference materials which i will post on the site the difficult thing about the harper brothers was it seems like there is a lot of legend and myth and tall tales about them and since it was in the 1700s the news wasn't around like it is today And even keeping track of history was more difficult. It was everything was very rudimentary at that point. Everything, you know, things were being formed. And um, I will get more into that as well. So that's one thing that makes this very difficult is it's hard to even find like birth records of the Hart brothers. And it's hard to tell the difference between was this a tall tale? Did this really happen? Or is it some something between the two? So I really tried to boil it down to the things that that were agreed upon. And of course, you know, I like to mention sometimes I didn't find this anywhere else, but this is an interesting thing that was mentioned in this source. So we have a little bit of that in there, but I'm try I try really hard not to spread things that probably aren't true. The Harp brothers were William and Joshua. I mentioned the 
birth records were hard to find. William was either born in 1748 or 1768. Joshua was either born in 1750 or 1770. So, you know, 20 year spans, kinda, kinda interesting. <laughs> and again, I'll, I'll kinda get into the age thing as well as I go, but that just right off the bat, that's like, ugh, I can't even pin down how old they were, really. They could have been cousins or brothers. Now, if you'll notice in all of those book titles, not only were they America's First Serial Killers, which everyone was very excited about, which is understandable, they also were called the Harp Brothers. They passed as brothers, they often said they were brothers, but that cannot be definitively proved if they were brothers or cousins. Some people in those books, they'll either side and say, I definitely think they're brothers. And the other would be like, no, I think they're cousins. So again, that's another thing that it can't be proven and nobody knows. But cousins are brothers, that's still family, and they still did horrific things that we will get into. Their fathers were probably John and William Harper. Now it makes sense that a kid named William would be William Harper's son, but we don't know if um, John was Joshua's dad, making them brothers, or if William had both William and Joshua, or John had both William and Joshua. We don't know. We know that John and William Harper were brothers. We know that there were kids named William and Joshua. We don't know who owned those kids. John and William Harper were Scottish immigrants. So this is another big problem with record keeping is we're not just dealing with people in the United States or in one country. We have people coming from another country into this country. Most likely they emigrated to North Carolina in 1760. This is where the name plays a big part because you will see it both H-A-R-P and H-A-R-P-E. I looked it up and if you'll notice, I said their fathers were John and William Harper. So I did a little research and you know what? Hey, don't know if you know, I go by Queen Victoria. But my last name is Harper, so that's something that's particularly interesting to me to cover this. The name was Harper originally in Scotland. It is an occupational name for a player on the harp, Harper, so that's not really a big surprise. In medieval times, the Harper was one of the most important figures in baronial halls, festivals, and fairs, and the laws of Scotland and Ireland ranked the playing of the harp as, quote, the one art of music which deserves nobility, which I'm sure Harpo would love to hear if you're familiar with the Marx Brothers. <laughs> he definitely bespoke nobility. <laughs> I will post the website that I get this information from as well, of course. The spelling variation between Harper, Harp with an E and Harp without an E, apparently that's the result of the medieval practice of spelling according to sound and repeated translation from Gaelic to English. Around this time period, numerous Scottish settlers settled along the east coast of the colonies that would become the United States and Canada. Other people went to the west. At the time of the American War of Independence, some people stayed in the States, but others that remained loyal to the crown went north to Canada and they stuck with England. So I think that's an interesting bit of information on the history so you get a kind of, you get a feel of what's going on in this time period. And this might be particularly important as to motivations and why the Hart brothers wound up the way they wound up. A little more information on the background. Part of the reason for the emigration, their societal structures were broken up and so they went to search for a better life so they went primarily to like South Carolina and Virginia, quite a few of them. Some of the Scots had emigrated to Ireland in the 1600s, and then they came to America and they became known as the Scots-Irish. It's interesting to note that 19 out of the 56 delegates to sign the Declaration of Independence were Scottish or Scots-Irish. Quite a few of the Scottish people had allegiances to Scotland and therefore they supported England. But then you also had groups that were loyal to the colonies. So you can see how there's a lot going on. You don't only have people who came from England to get away from them. You also have people from Scotland and Ireland that came in at the same, you know, were all there together. And some of them, even though they came to America, they still felt like we should, which, I mean, you guys all know, <laughs> there were, that's why there was a war of independence because, you know, they butted heads on whether they should be loyal to America or England. So it's interesting to have the extra textures of Scottish and Scot Scots-Irish involved in this. A funny side note is apparently the harp motto means pleasant and brave. And that's kind of funny considering that the Harp brothers go on to be known as America's first serial killers when the family motto is <laughs> pleasant and brave. Well, maybe they were brave and they could be pleasant, I'm sure. Why this matters is because the Harp brothers' dad was loyal to England. So there was 
a major problem with people around them that they were still loyal to England. Most likely this led to them being run out. His dad was probably run off or possibly even killed for it. There's no mention of the mom, so either the mom just wasn't in the picture or she didn't emigrate or maybe she was run off or killed too for being loyal to England. Some said that the Hart brothers actually fought in the Revolutionary, Revolutionary War for the British, but in Harp's Last Rampage, the author says they would have been too young, that they would have been around 12 or 10. Again, that's where the 20-year difference in births is difficult, and it's difficult to really pin everything down. So they might have fought in the Revolutionary War. If they did, it was said that they fought for the British, but they deserted. So then they kind of went on their own and raided farms and robbed travelers and just kind of did their own thing. Here is also another big sticking point, is whether they kidnapped women and the women they kidnapped. It is said that William kidnapped Susan and Betsy Roberts, who were sisters. In some accounts, the names were Susan Wood and Maria or Betsy Davidson. According to The Last Rampage, there's no proof of that any of the women were named Wood or Davidson, or that they were kidnapped even. At some point, Joshua met Sarah Rice, who was a minister's daughter. It is said that he kidnapped her, but it may have actually been a mutual thing. He may have actually seduced her and led her to believe that he was great and everything was wonderful, and then she ran off with him. Dunno. They really focus a lot in a wilderness, that's how, how they have it. At any rate, there is a record of marriages in Tennessee that shows Joshua marrying Susanna Roberts on September 5th, 1797, and Joshua marrying Sarah Rice on June 1st, 1797. So they were legally married, at least to Sarah and Susanna. Apparently Betsy was just hanging out, and it is said that they did share their women. That seems to be even across the board. There's evidence because the women get pregnant. All three women get pregnant at the same time. So there's that. I'll be going through this chronologically, but at this point, I do want to point out that they were said to have killed four of their kids, but in 1799, it was confirmed that there were three kids alive, and there's only ever a further reference to two of the kids. I guess quite a few of the sources are just vague, like they traveled with women and children, and William was said to have killed his daughter, his four-month-old daughter. There's one theory that most likely, if they are having sex with these women all the time, and there are three women... Most likely, you would think they would get pregnant quite a bit, and it wouldn't be surprising they wouldn't want to have these children as baggage, so one option would be to kill them. Or someone thought they could have given the kids to relatives, because if you look at census records, then all of a sudden, this family has like three more kids, or you know, this family has another kid that is like maybe an age that didn't match the last census. So it's possible they could have just passed these kids on to people in the family. So that's an interesting theory. And I mean, it sounds pretty plausible. Of course, if you see how bloodthirsty they wind up being, it's not necessarily surprising they would kill kids. But again, there's a lot happening. There's a lot going on that we're gonna talk about. I jumped ahead to the women and the marriages to sum that up in a little section there. So I will note that in 1794, that's apparently when they dropped the E off their name and they started just going by H-A-R-P. William changed his name to Micaiah and it is spelled M-I-C-A-J-A-H. I actually looked up how to pronounce it because I wasn't 100% sure and I wanted to be sure. And it's kind of fun to say Micaiah. So William changed his name to Micaiah and people called him Big Heart. He was above average height, 200 plus pounds. <laughs> Apparently he had a super big head. And if there are any Story Mary Next Murderer fans, you can add your own uh, quote from the movie. He'd punts new. Anyway, so he had a big, and apparently he liked to use a tomahawk. Uh, the height was apparently six feet, two inches. Now, Joshua changed his name to Wiley and was known as Little Harp. He was not little, so he wasn't, it's not like he was super tiny or he was even much smaller at all than his brother. He was just smaller than his brother, a little bit, and he had red hair. One of those details that I'm going to throw out there that I could not find in anything other than the um, Wilderness of Tigers, that's the faction piece, it says in that book, Wiley had two toes grown together on the left foot so they were webbed. Later, when they saw one of the babies, they saw a baby with a webbed foot. Now, since I didn't see this in anything else, I'm going to take that as one of those details that they threw in for color. It does seem like something that would be a rumor going around, that these people who are running around doing crazy things would have some kind of deformity. So I could totally see that being one of the rumors. 
since it was never mentioned anything else, I don't know if that's actually something that maybe he came across and no one else did, or if he just threw that in there, like, that is the kind of thing that would have happened frontier at that point in time. So I don't think that's an actual fact, but it was kind of funny that they just threw that in there. So moving forward, I'm going to be calling them Makaya or Wiley, because that's how they're mostly how they're referred to in, in the materials. And then sometimes they say big and little. And I actually had to keep reminding myself which one was big and which one was little. So <laughs> I'll try to keep it as clear as I can for you. 1798 is when they supposedly started their spree of killing. One of their calling cards tended to be they would cut the people open, take out their insides, stuff stones inside, and then put them in the river. And then, you know, hopefully they would sink and then not be found. Or they would just mutilate the bodies and just leave them for whatever wanted to eat them out, out in the forest or whatever. They also liked to rape, steal, stab, shoot, bludgeon, and they did not have a victim preference. So it was anywhere, as you'll see, it goes anywhere from like kids, White people, black people, grown men, grown women, they did not give a shit. There was a point when they joined the Cherokee Indians and apparently stayed with them for 7 to 12 years. So, I guess you... Again, there's that vague time span. But the point is, they were with them for a little bit. They possibly raided white settlers with them, which wouldn't really be surprising because if they're going around killing people, then why do they care if they're killing other white people or not? You know? There was... A raid on Nickajack, which is the village they were staying. They managed to escape and go to Knoxville, where they got a cabin in Beaver Creek. And if you're here in Dayton, you understand why that's fun for us. Supposedly, the first murder was of M Moses Doss, which was one of their friends. Apparently, he hit on one of their women, and Micaiah Big Harp did not care for that. So he split his head open and the body was found on the road. They didn't like to share their women with other people, just with each other. Which, it's, you know, it's good to have structure in your relationships and have boundaries. It's very important. When they were settled in Beaver Creek, they raised pigs and they sold the pork to John Miller. Now, the problem is, is they weren't just using their own pig meat. They would go around to local farms and steal pigs and cattle and such so john miller started to get suspicious like i know your farm and you're giving me a lot more meat than there's any way that you can produce they wind up being arrested for theft they get away um they're pissed obviously so they burn down a ton of barns of people that accuse them and then they steal more of their livestock at this point they figure that they should just cut their losses and run so they run, and there were a couple times when they left separately from the women so it would make it harder to catch them all. That is interesting to know that the women were separated from them and kept they kept coming, meeting and coming back. So it was either they were afraid to stay away from them, or they had Stockholm Syndrome, or they were really into them after all. At any rate, while the Harps were traveling, they came upon a Reverend William Lambooth. They started to rob him, but then... They found they saw his Bible and it had like it had a signature of George Washington in it. So they let him go. They gave him back his stuff and they let him live and they're like, hey, tell him, you know, where are the harps? Anytime I saw that, that they oh they saw the name George Washington, so they let him go. Nothing really explained why that's a thing, and uh, I guess I didn't completely understand because if George Washington was lo loyal to the colonies, why would they be cool with you know, I don't know. It didn't make sense to me. So I looked into it. And according to ScottishAncestors.com, and I quote, George Washington, the most famous revolutionary, the father of the country and commander-in-chief of the American army, was descended from Scotland on his mother's side. So, there you go. They come from Scottish ancestry. Then a Georgie boy has some Scottish in him too. So, eh, he may be for America, but he's got some Scott in. So, alright, we're gonna let this uh, minister guy go. This could just be arbitrary. It could have really just depended on their mood. Because I'm sure they didn't stop and check with every person they were robbing if they had Scottish ancestry. They just happened to find that out. And maybe if they were in a bad mood, maybe they would have still killed him and been like, well, let's not pay attention to the Scottish part of George. Let's pay attention to the revolutionary American part of George, you know? It could have just been a whim. It's it's hard to tell. But I do think, think that's, that's an interesting detail. They managed to get caught, but they escaped. 
So they were caught by this posse, and basically the posse's like hanging out, and I don't know if they do the look over there. And then while everybody's looking over there, they do like the Scooby-Doo run away. I don't know. (laughs) Or they do the Blues Brothers creep away. But they got away. They kill a man named Johnson. According to the Wilderness Book, they thought he had accused them of theft. So they killed him, put rocks in the body, and threw him in the river. I just realized I forgot to mention earlier when I first mentioned their MO of putting rocks in the body and throwing them in the river. If that sounds familiar to you, if you were able to sit through my David Parker Ray episode, which is called Hello There, Bitch, you will know that is supposedly what David Parker Ray would do to get rid of bodies. Now, again, they never found any bodies, but his accomplice girlfriend said that he told her that's how he would handle it. And they had a body, a body of water near them, so that was totally plausible. But I thought it was interesting that, you know, again, since I compare serial killers, it's interesting to see this is another serial killer that would handle bodies that way. Next up, they killed someone named Peyton, and then Paca and Bates. One source said that Paca and Bates were both killed with a shot to the head. Another source said that Paco had a tomahawk to the head and that Bates was shot in the heart. But... The common theme is they were deed. The next person they killed actually made the news. Most sources call the man Stephen Langford, but a newspaper at the time said his name was Thomas. So there are a couple sources that call him Thomas. Thomas or Stephen Langford was killed. He was at an inn at Rockcastle River. Apparently they went in and assaulted him and then dragged him out and killed him. Sometimes, uh, instead of going by Harp, they might go by Roberts, because if you'll remember, Susan Roberts, Susan and Betsy Roberts. So sometimes they would slip that name in there, so that way they're not just always spread the name Harp around to kind of cover their tracks so they don't get caught. Speaking of getting caught, on Christmas Day, 1798, they got arrested, the men and the women. And this is, at this point in time, the women are all pregnant. So this is totally ideal, is to be pregnant in prison. Especially in 1798, I'm sure. So they're thrown in Danville prison. The men managed to escape. This prison was supposed to be really hard to get out of. So the guy on duty, there was some talk afterwards that maybe he helped them out. That he kind of left the, um, he left a tool where they could reach it. Like right outside their little jail cell. And so they reached it and they were able to pull the pins out of the door. And take the door off and sneak out. Apparently the sound that they were making of pulling the pins out, like banging the pins out. Someone else that was around just thought that the guy doing security was doing some work. So he didn't go check. The harps get away. They left their pregnant women. Now this could either be a move of fuck the women and children. It's every man for himself. Or it could have been they're better off being pregnant and there and they can give birth there and they're better off there. There is a story that the Roberts sister's dad, old man Roberts, showed up and told them to go along and to pretend like they're repentant and that they were kidnapped and they never wanted to be involved and that he would help them get back to their men. So they said that they're like, just say you're innocent, the men will take the heat and then as soon as you're let go, we'll get you back to them. So the women were tried and Only Susan was found guilty. She asked for a retrial and was released. The other two women were not charged. Now, they were charged with the Langford murder only because there's not enough evidence for any of the other murders, even though they had, you know, hearsay and there was not any hard proof that they had done it. So the women were sent off. Everybody believed that they were repentant and that they were going to change their lives. They gave them clothes. They, you know, the babies were born. Susan had a daughter named Lovey, which is either L-O-V-I-E or L-O-V-E-Y. It's spelled both ways. Betsy had a son, Joseph, and Sarah had a son, and I never saw a name. She, it, most information about that was in the Wilderness, which is the faction book, and at that point she hadn't named the baby. She was hoping that, she was hoping that they would help her name it. There was a posse formed along with Colonel Daniel Tribune. He was waiting on it's either his grandson or son. Again, I saw both. His grandson or son had run to get some beans and flour. The colonel was like, let's just let him come back and then I'll go off with you and we'll take care of business. Problem is, the boy's dog came back all bloody and limping 
they go running out looking to see what's going on and apparently the harps had killed this little kid they found him shot and mutilated so again when i said earlier they didn't discriminate they did not discriminate they killed this little boy um, presumably because they knew that they knew that the colonel had been involved in posses before they killed a man named Dooley, a man from Edmonton, a man on the Barren River, Stump, and three people in Potts Springs. And then finally, on April 22nd, 1799, Kentucky Governor James Gerard offered $300 reward each. In the Wilderness book, it said that it was issued on March 19th, and it gave the age of Micaiah as age 30 to 32 with Wiley being a couple years younger. At this point they joined pirates at a place called Cave in Rock. C-A-V-E-I-N-Rock. Cave in Rock. It was headed by pirate Samuel Mason and basically what they would do is they were near a river and when people would come through traveling they would attack the boats and then you know, do their rape, plunder, pillage, and then that's how they made their money. So these are pirates. So these are men that steal and, you know, have no compunction about living that type of life. They kicked out the Harp brothers because they were too much for them. <laughs> One story that is common, and I found it throughout everything, is that they stripped a man naked, blindfolded him, put him on a horse, blindfolded the horse... Then chase the horse off of a cliff for fun. I'm pretty sure that's not what they mean by a double-blind test. There's one story of a couple was having this nice picnic and making out when all of a sudden they were shoved off the cliff. That was not in the faction book. That was in a different book. So, but I didn't see any place else. So I don't know if, again, that is just a story. But it's probably true because apparently they just like to push people off fucking cliffs. They were kicked out of the pirate's den, May 1799, at which point they went on to kill these people. Bradbury, son of Chelsea Coffee, whose name was Isaac Coffee, apparently his brains wound up on a tree. William Ballard and Hardin, they ran into the Brassel brothers, and when the brother Robert ran, they slit his brother James's throat. So Robert ran off and gathered a posse. Then they went on to kill John Tully, John Graves and his 13-year-old son, a young slave boy, a young white girl, the Titsworth family, who were eight adults and children, plus their slaves. They took a 14-year-old boy's rifle in his shoes and killed him. They thought they had killed a guy named Hugh Dunlap because they thought he was part of the reason he was run out of town for that hog thing. But they shot the wrong guy. So that kind of upset them a little bit. But, you know, I don't know. At least they still got to kill someone. It was also around this time that supposedly, supposedly Big Harp Micaiah killed Sarah's baby. Apparently the baby was crying, and so he took it by the leg and bashed it against a tree. That is the interesting part about not finding out any more information on Sarah's kid. So most likely the baby was killed because we still have information on Lovey and Joseph, who were the sons of the, who were the kids of the other women, but we don't have information on Sarah's kid. We know that she was pregnant in that jail. Plus, Micaiah will have a little bit more to say about that in a few moments. They pretended to be Methodist ministers and visited a man named John Tompkins. He invited them for some food, and when he mentioned, when John mentioned that he didn't have enough gunpowder, they actually gave him some, and they left without hurting him. So this is another one of those occasions where it's bizarre that they didn't at least rob him, that they actually gave him something. I'm wondering if since they were pretending to be Methodist ministers, maybe they were in a fun mood. I mean, it's not implausible that sometimes they might want to do fucked up things just because it's funny. And I don't know, maybe they just had a really good haul that they made. You never know. I imagine they were getting into the role of being the Methodist ministers and they think it's funny. So they give them some gunpowder because they're like, you know what, we can just go take some from someone else. It's not like a big deal. Maybe they just got a big hollow gunpowder, so they had extra and they didn't care. So they just left him alone. Again, it's it's hard to know for sure. They said their names were John Rice, that is Sarah Rice's father's name, who was a minister, and Lilliburn Roberts. I don't know about the Lilliburn, but again, Roberts is the their wife's name. While they were there, they had asked where Silas McBee's house was. So, you know, they just said, oh, he's an old friend. We'd like to see him. So John told him. In several sources, I saw it spelled Silas M-C-B-E-E, McBee. But in the Wilderness Faction book, it's 
Magby as an M-A-G-B-Y. So I don't know if that's where he had said that he had expanded his role and had him doing things and being more involved than he, he was, that he didn't want to take Nick B. He wanted to say Magby. So it's close, but it's not like, you know, like these names have been changed to protect the blah, blah, blah. I'm imagining that's why it was spelled Magby. Although you never know. <laughs> we all have established that name spellings go crazy sometimes. So they went to Silas McBee. They were drove off by his dogs. Now Silas said that he heard his dogs barking and saw people out there with guns. So it's interesting that the dogs ran them off. Most likely they were probably going to come there to kill them. We don't know 100% why, but it's surmised that they knew that he had been looking for them. They go on to Moses Stegall's house. It's possible that they were that he was a friend of theirs. He had a mean reputation. So that being said, it wouldn't be surprising if he was friends with them. He was not home. But his wife, Mary, and their baby were home. They had a guest, Major William Love, visiting. Isn't that a great name? Major William Love. I mean, that had to go over well with the ladies, right? I'm Major Love. That or he was a complete douchebag. So it, it can work either way. Major William Love did not have a great time because he was asleep when Micaiah and Wiley showed up. The, Mary is like, Moses isn't home. We have a guest. You can go sleep where he's sleeping. Micaiah comes in, and it was either late that night or the next morning, where he's angry because Major William Love was a snorer. But he took care of that, and he either tomahawked him or he slit his throat. He told Mary, I killed the man. She continued to make breakfast. She thought he, he was just putting on. She's making breakfast. Her baby starts crying. Micaiah's like, hey, I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. I got it. You keep making breakfast. The baby quiets down, and she's like, oh, huh, I guess he's pretty good with kids. So she goes over a few minutes later. The baby had had its throat slit. She screams, and then she gets killed as well. And for good measure, they burn the house down. They killed this baby with no compunction. They killed this woman with no compunction. And they killed a snoring man because that was annoying. There, there again reiterates there's no demographic. There's no, it's just if it's inconvenient to them, then they have no problem with taking care of that problem. A posse was formed, which you'll notice a theme. There are lots of posses in this. In the meantime, they killed a guy named Gilmore. They either shot him in the head or bashed his head in. At any point, he had no heed. He killed a man named Hudgens or Hutchins, either by stabbing him or beating his head in, which they seem to like to do a lot of head bashing or shooting in heads and stuff. So, But, you know, sometimes maybe they stab just to change things up a bit. They also killed their dog. So you see that they have no rhyme or reasons with dogs either because they didn't kill that boy's dog. But they killed this dog. So I guess maybe the, the dog annoyed them. Maybe tried to bite him on his big heat. The posse catches up with the Harp brothers. Big Harp, Micaiah. So in one case, so he was shot in the back. He fell. He got shot again. And then he was disappeared. He killed some of the people in the posse. Then he was shot and stabbed. And Moses Stegall, the one whose wife and baby were killed, he cut off his head while the dude was still alive. This is another story where there are several versions. They're all basically the same, but there are some extra things thrown in. So there's one where Moses knew that he was dead, so he cut his head off then. But in most of them, he cut the guy's head off while he was still alive. That's a moment when you say, well, yeah, he killed his wife and baby. So it's understandable that he would want to cut his head off. What might add another layer of complexity is if he was friends with the Hart brothers. Because if they were friendly, then that would make what they did even worse to him. Unless it might be that uneasy friendship where you kind of know where each other stand with each other. You know that these are bad dudes and they're going to do bad shit and I'm not immune. So they kind of knows what's up. But you would still not really necessarily expect them to kill your wife and kid. There are a few layers there. No matter what Moses was feeling or any motivations, he did cut off the guy's head. That is confirmed. And he put the head on a tree as a warning to people. And that location was labeled Harp's head. Little Harp, Wiley, got away. He went back to the pirates under the name of John Sutton and hung out with them for hung out with them for a little bit. It was uh, about 1804. And then there was a bounty put on Mason's head. John Sutton also known as Wiley Little Harp. Him and his friend were like, well, let's cut off his head and take the money. So they cut off Mason's head and they go into town, present the head, and they're like, hey, we're here for our money. But someone recognizes them and they are arrested, hanged, and their heads are put on a stake. 
So the interesting thing is, regardless of how they got caught, when they got caught, both harps had their heads on a stake at the end. The women were put on trial for the Mary Stegall and the baby, and also William Love. Major William Love. They were found innocent on October 28th, 1799. So at this point, Big Harp's dead. Little Harp is with the pirates when they were convicted. The interesting thing is none of the women went to find Lil Harp because apparently they had the fill. Sarah Rice ended up marrying a guy named Thompson. Betsy married a man named John Hofstetler or Hofstetler or Hofstetter and had a large family. Susan did not end up getting married. She lived on the same farm with Betsy. She changed her name and apparently she ended up living in a farm in Russellville and just tried to be on her own. The kids that we know of Susan's daughter, Lovey, married Colonel Anthony Butler, who wound up being one of Andrew Jackson's advisors. Betsy's son, Joseph Roberts Harp, joined the army. No E on the end, by the way. He got married and had a family. Again, there's no record of any other kids. When Big Harp was caught, he did confess to 20 murders. And he said that the only one that he felt guilty of, that he regretted, was killing Sarah's baby. So out of all the people that they killed, so keep in mind, he confessed to 20. It's possible there were more that we don't know about. Like I said, there are some things that gain, that say it could be up to 40. The only one that upset him was killing his own kid. So if that specifically, if he just felt bad about that one, that tells me he could be lying. I mean, I don't know why he would try to give them some kind of compassionate view of himself where he felt bad for killing his baby, but he didn't feel bad for anything else. You know, I don't, I don't know what the motivation would that would be. You'd think he'd be like, yeah, I fucking killed 20 people. What? You know, like he's dying and fuck you. I don't know why he would specifically throw that out there if he didn't feel it. So I wonder maybe he did really only kill that kid and either the other brother killed the other kids or the other kids were given away or somehow they managed to only have three kids out of all those years sharing wives. Who knows? But I think it is interesting that that is thrown in there that he felt bad for killing his baby obviously did not feel bad about killing someone else's baby but that's different because that's someone else's baby in wilderness they surmise the possible motivations for the harp brothers actions as i mentioned before maybe the whole dichotomy of living in a place that has the english sympathizers fighting with the american or colonial sympathizers so you have that and his family was known to be supportive of the british so the thought is if they grew up with that tension always there, especially if their father and possibly mother were run off because of that or killed because of that, that maybe that just kind of planted a seed in them to just do whatever the fuck they wanted and, and stay sympathetic with the people that their father was sympathetic to. So maybe that planted that every man for himself, fuck you, I'm going to do what I want to do because they do have in... Wilderness, they have the harps kind of go going on about how once you realize that people are all against you, then it's easy to be against everyone else. You know, like, I'm going to get them before they get me. And it's okay because the other thing is during this time period, it wasn't like you can have Amazon Prime deliver stuff to your door or, you know, there was a market right down the street or think there were conveniences. It was really fucking hard. So it might be easier to have the mentality of, I need to get by however I need to get by. And then if you already have something ingrained, a hardness ingrained in you, that makes it easier to live that way. And if that keeps getting, you know, I mean, they keep getting away. So as we see in a lot of cases with criminals is if they get away, then why not keep doing it? There's no punishment, you know, or if the punishments are light, then why not keep, you know, why uh, be the Joe Schmo that goes to, that works really hard at things when I can just go take it from someone else when there's no repercussions, especially if you're not worried about like your mortal soul or ethics or anything like that. Ultimately, we'll never know why they were the way they were. Maybe they really just liked killing. Who knows? In the book by Wallace Edwards, America's First Serial Killers. I know just saying America's First Serial Killers doesn't help because they all had that in the title, but the one specifically by Wallace Edwards, he surmises that they had battered, they could have had battered wives syndrome, and that's why the women kept going back to the men. He also shows Sally being seduced and courted and then kind of falling into it and being, you know, a minister's daughter that gets is tired of her father telling her what to do and she wants to go off and be on her own and this seems exciting, but then once she's in it she's there's kind of the sister wives things where they have that bond of 
sharing their men and having in that her and Susan didn't get along real well. There was always a little bit of a rivalry, but they still had that basic feeling overall in it together. And then later she feels betrayed. We won't really know, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. It makes sense. It is interesting to try to think about it and try to puzzle out why they might have stayed in the situation if they were kidnapped. In a side note, I did check to see if I was possibly related to the Harps, because again, my name is Harper, but alas, I am not, which is okay with me. It would have been kind of uh, interesting if they were distant relatives of mine, and I admit that I kind of liked the idea of having some podcast cred, that I'm doing a serial killer podcast and I'm related to serial killers, but overall, I'm totally fine <laughs> with not having any, any serial killers in my family. Well, that wraps it up for the Harp brothers, or cousins. I'm sure that I will be bringing them up later for other things. Now it's time to discuss Andrush Pandi. It's spelled like Andrus Pandi. And I have to admit, I knew a guy named Andy that we called Andy Pandy. <laughs> so it was hard not to think of that. Instead of calling him Andrus Pandy, he's actually from Hungary originally. So I feel like I should try to pronounce the names the way that they're supposed to be pronounced. So bear with me. I looked at pronunciations and stuff. So according to the pronunciations that I looked at, it's Andrash Pandi. His killing spree was from 1986 to 1990. He's known to have killed six people with 14 possible people. And the murders primarily took place in Belgium. Andrash Pandi was born on the 1st of June in 1927 in Chop in Czechoslovakia, the Ukraine, to Hungarian parents. They actually went to Hungary until about 1945. He married for the first time in 1956 to Ilana Sors. Now her last name is spelled S-O-R-E-S. <laughs> I did look up her name because there was a moment when I couldn't tell if it was L-L-O-N-A or I-L-O-N-A. And since her last name is spelled like Sors, like the third one down was a link to vaginal sores. <laughs> So that was not something I expected to come upon in this specific episode. Um, but, you know, that's the fun of research, right? At any rate, they got married in 1956. They fled to Belgium in 1957 because Hungary attempted to revolt against Russian control, but the uprising was crushed by the Soviet Union. So they ran away and they moved to Brussels. He became a pastor in the Flemish part of the country leading religious services and teaching religion, he was a pastor at a church for fellow Hungarians who had also fled. Later, he began to work for the United Protestant Church as a teacher. It was part of the Reformed Church. Now, this, um, this caught me up because one of the sources that I looked at said it was Lutheran, but I was really curious about what the United Protestant Church was. So I looked it up, specifically in Belgium, and it's actually a Methodist organization. So I had to do a little, like, bouncing around. So then I found that the United Protestant Church was related to this other Reformed Church group. And when I looked into what they were into, they were into Calvinism as opposed to Lutheranism. And I'm not going to get into a big old long thing because it really doesn't have a lot of bearing on this specific case. Except the, the funny thing is, in this episode, I'm covering the Hart Brothers, which were from Harper's, which is my real last name, and my father was a Methodist minister. So I'm a minister's daughter. So it's just kind of funny the little thin connections that I have to these two. I had no idea that he might be affi affiliated with the Methodist church when I looked into Andrush Pandi. So it's just kind of a coincidence, but I thought it was kind of funny. That church was known to support migrants and refugees integrating into society, which is interesting because Pondy himself was the founder of a humanitarian organization set up to provide foster care for children orphaned during the Romanian Revolution that toppled the Ceausescu dictatorship. Now, I will throw in here another side note, because when I first saw this word, this name, I was like, I have no idea what that is. But then my Seinfeld knowledge kicked in, and I remembered there was an episode of Seinfeld where he dated a Romanian gymnast, and they talked about Ceausescu, the dictator. So because of Seinfeld, I knew what this was. So I'm kind of proud. It's like a 
Jerry's knowledge of high culture comes from Looney Tunes. I'm actually very similar, obviously. So the organization that he founded, it was a very clever name, she says sarcastically. The foundation was called Yidnap. Y-D-N-A-P. His name spelled backwards. Y-D-N-A-P, Yidnap. I honestly did not believe that detail when I first saw it because it was, I'm sorry, it was too stupid to believe. Like, there's no no way. No way he would have an organization that was had such a lame name. But tonight when I was double-checking my research, I saw a picture in a YouTube news video that showed Club Yidnap clears day on the side of a, a window. So he actually did have an organization called Yidnap, which is, I mean, okay, so I'm making fun of the name, but, you know, it was foster care for children orphaned during a revolution. So that's, that's good. That's nice. So apparently that foundation helped him raise enough money to buy several houses, which we'll get to more in a bit. So he is a pastor. All right, keep that in mind. Now, this is on the Serial Killer podcast. So we all know... He was obviously not a pacifist, at least not in his personal life. His wife, Ilana, had a daughter, Agnes, or Agnes, I'll probably just slip and call her Agnes, who was born in January of 1958. They also wound up having two sons, Daniel and Zotan, which is a lot of fun. Daniel was born in 1961 and Zotan on 1966. When the last child was about a year old, Ilana moved out of the house with the two boys because P- Pondi accused her of infidelity. She left Agnes with her father. In 1970, he began placing ads for a new wife, often giving a false name and job description and using the motto European Honeymoon in the ads. Unfortunately, about that same time, he began to sexually abuse his daughter Agnes, who was 13 at the time. He kept visiting hung- Hungary throughout the 70s, where he met his second wife in 1979, Edith Fintor. She was already married, but apparently she was so taken by him and the Yidnap organization that she came back to Belgium with him. She had three daughters from a previous marriage, Taimia, Andrea, and Tund, who were born in 64, 71, and 72, respectively. At this point, he also was teaching religion as a pastor at a number of state schools as well. Soon after their marriage, Pandy and Edith had two children, a son, Andrash, and daughter, Reka. Andrash was born in 1980. Reka was born in 1981. So there's lots of kids. Lots of possible people to kill. Throughout this time, he was still raping and molesting his daughter, Agnes. But in 1984, he started an abusive relationship with Taimiya, his stepdaughter, getting her pregnant. She tried to hide the pregnancy, but he found out. This is a case where some sources say that Pandy wanted her and the baby killed, So Agnes decided to do it for him. But in most sources, they say she did it out of jealousy, that she tried to bludgeon Taimiya to death with an iron bar. But Taimiya escaped and went to a hospital where she filed a complaint against Agnes and Pondi. It led to nothing. Pondi always claimed that Taimiya must have used a towel containing his semen, and that's how she got pregnant. I mean, we know how many times you've accidentally, you know, wiped with your boyfriend's jerkin towel and you got pregnant again. Or, you know, there's desperate women who just need to get pregnant by their stepfathers that they'll steal the crispy socks for the goods to get their baby. If you're not sure about the crispy socks reference, you need to YouTube Key and Peel crispy socks. You've got to do it. It'll be worth it. You can pause this right now and go do it and come back. I don't know how many people actually bought the pregnant by a towel story. I'm guessing probably not many, but apparently, again, nothing happened with it. So she winds up giving birth to a son named Mark. Two years later, she's about to leave for Vancouver to stay with her mother's uncle. And she tells her mom that Andras was the father of her baby. Obviously, since the mom was married to him, she was not happy. So it caused a really big argument between Pondi and Edith. Interestingly enough, Edith and her daughter Andrea disappear at that point. Taimiya is still alive. She makes it back to Hungary, but Edith and her daughter are just gone. Edith's family is told that she ran away to Germany with a lover and her daughter. Pondi even shows the family a telegram that it's proof. He has proof that they wrote to him and everything's okay. Two years later, his first wife, Ilana, and their sons, Daniel and Zotan, disappear. Pondi says they went to France and he has a telegram. Later, he said something that she actually uh, went to South America. 
But, you know, at any rate, they're still fine. He has letters and stuff. It's all right. In 1989, Pondy sends Agnes on a vacation with Reka and Andras Jr. He kills Tuned and tells the rest of the family that she became disturbed and was now living with a different family. So six people have disappeared. It's 1989 and no one seems to be thinking anything is up. Until 1992, Pondy had retired. For whatever reason, Agnes decided to go to the police and tell them about the abuse and the missing family members. The police went to talk to him, but he said that his wives and children had gone abroad indefinitely. He had letters and postcards from them or people who had seen them. So he had proof. Led to nothing. It was only until about 1997 when the Mark Dutroux case happened. Now, if you... Remember, I covered Mark Dutroux in my Murderers with Murder Lab series. He was in Belgium and he had kidnapped girls and four of them had died. If you remember, he had been reported several times by people to the police and the police had never followed up on anything. So at this point, you have the Dutroux case where girls are missing. They realize the police have done shit. Everybody's pissed off. There was a big march. So government had to scramble and parliamentary committee ordered the reopening of all judicial orders on missing people. They found that 1992 report about Agnes and her accusations. So they reached out to speak to her again. So five years later, after she made the report, she was called back and they started to actually look into it. Now, at this point, she's a librarian. She's 39 years old. Her dad's 70 and it had been it had been like eight years since the disappearances of the last people in his family. She said six people were killed. She told officers that she was with Pondy when Edith and Andrea were murdered, that she killed her own mother and brother, and that later her other brother was killed. She also told police that she knew nothing about the murder of Tuned because she wasn't there. She divulged further details that they were all shot or bludgeoned with a hammer. They were dismembered using axes, cleavers, and kitchen knives. And I quote, she said, It was my task to take out the organs while Pondy was cutting up the remains. I just used a kitchen knife. You have to exercise strength. It's not that easy. You have to exercise strength. It's not that easy. So she had to cut them open and take out their organs. Now, this brings to mind a time when I had an ingrown hair on my leg and it had grown into an abscess, which sucked. So I went to the urgent care. And I knew that sometimes they have to cut them open and drain them to get to feel better. So I'm like, just cut me open. Just do it. And the doctor looked so concerned. And he said, you can't just cut into someone. You really have to commit. I'm not exaggerating. That's exactly what he said. You really have to commit. So this doctor who just had to cut a little tiny slit in my leg couldn't do it. But this girl had to disembowel her own mother and brother. I'm going to let that sink in. So she would disembowel them, the father would chop up the bodies, and then they would dissolve him, them in drain cleaner. This was a common household product called Cleanest. C-L-E-A-N-E-S-T. Cleanest. It was so powerful, it would dissolve bodies. Amazingly enough, they actually wound up taking it off the market. Big surprise. Might not be great for the common household to have, right? What was handy for them? Anything that couldn't be disposed of in the drain cleaner, they would take chunks to the local abattoir waste or butcher shops. She also re reiterated to them about his abuse of her since he was 13, her fear of him and being an unwilling accomplice. So we see that she actually was scared and did have remorse. I mean, she came to the police in 1992, so obviously she was not happy with the things happening. I can't imagine the level of fear someone would have to put into you for you to be able to disembowel your mother, but that says a lot about the hold he had on her. I also think, I'm also wondering about that dynamic between her mother and her, because if her mother left, she might not have actually had any kind of relationship with her. So maybe it was nothing to, maybe not nothing. I mean, obviously it was, it was, it would be traumatic regardless, but I just really wonder about the dynamic between her father's need to kill them and her role in the whole thing. I couldn't find anything where she specifically said, this is why he did it, or this is why I helped him. I mean, it said that she said she killed her mom. So maybe it was even a level of if she lived with her dad and her dad kept saying, your mom cheated on me. Your mom was at fault. 
So maybe there's a level of that where she just kept having it reinforced that her mom was bad and hurt her father. And she lives with her father. Her father obviously had her brainwashed or under his control somehow. So maybe that's why she would kill her mom and then her brother. You know, maybe he came in for defense to try to help her mom. But again, we won't ever know. It also makes me wonder about Tymea, where if... Pondy said, well, I don't want anyone to know that Time Me is pregnant with my baby. Maybe she still had that loyalty where she would go kill her stepsister to try to protect her father. And maybe there was a level of jealousy because if if she was used to having her father to herself, whether she was unhappy with it relationship and it's it's a weird a weird thing where someone who hurts you all the time can have that power where you still want their approval and you need their approval especially in a situation where she's worried that he might hurt her you know um it's very complex thing so it's possible that even if she ultimately was afraid of her dad and was uncomfortable with the things happening that maybe there was a level of jealousy that she tried to kill to try to keep her father protected when she confessed that she had killed her mom, of course she was arrested. And she also faced the charge for attempted murder on her stepsister. Pondy himself was arrested on October 20th, 1997, or October 16th or October 17th. I couldn't find. There are places that said each thing. There were two sources that said, that said October 20th, so... I'm guessing it's that date. At any rate, at the end of October 1997, when he was age 70, he was arrested. He was charged with six counts of premeditated murder, and it was concluded that he had also raped three of his daughters. He denied the charges. Of course. This is when a bunch of shit comes out, as you can imagine. This dude owned three houses. Now, <laughs> in my experience as a Methodist minister, of course, this is in America, and it's it's a little bit different. My mom was actually a minister's daughter, Nazarene minister's daughter. I haven't known many ministers that have much money. <laughs> I'm sure they're out there in another denominations and in other places. Things are handled differently. It's just weird to me to think of a minister that is able to have three houses. But again, he did have that charity that he ran that apparently he was able to profit from somehow. And he was a working man. So maybe you just real good with money like uh, Gary Heidnick was. So his three houses. Police had a lot of work ahead of them. He had one house at a place about 20 miles north of Budapest where neighbors said the pastor was often seen with women. Now, remember, he had placed wanted ads for ladies in Lonely Hearts type magazines. So he had been looking for women at one point in the 70s. They searched his home that was in Budapest. They discovered bone fragments, an urn containing ashes, and large pieces of flesh in two refrigerators. At another house that he had in Belgium, the remains of at least two bodies were found. Police uncovered evidence, which in the words of one magazine, made prosecutors shudder. They found teeth, bones, flesh, bloodstains, ripped clothing, hair, and ashes. The, a basement room was spattered with blood on the walls. Large pieces of unidentified flesh were in the freezer. Teeth belonging to eight different people had been found in one of his homes. Forensic tests indicated the teeth came from seven women between the ages of 35 and 55, plus one man between 18 and 23, none of whom were related to Pondy. They did not find the remains of any of the family members that he killed. These were completely different people. So they had 13 victims total. So if you count the missing people and then these new people, there were about 13 people. But it was difficult to determine exactly how many. And firearms were also discovered behind a false ceiling. They found 21 liters of an ultra-powerful acidic drain cleaner called cleanest they were never able to find out who who all of the remains belonged to since there were seven women they thought well that's probably the women that he had recruited from the lonely hearts ads that apparently probably killed them and maybe he got money from them and that's another way that he could have funded his stuff but again there was no motive he never he never he always denied that anything happened and they they reiterated it's the father who ordered the murders it's the father who was doing it but we just we don't know why we don't understand we don't even know where these missing people are the trial started the 18th of february 2002 and they went back through where he had been produced letters that he had been sent but it turns out those were falsified he had actually in 1994 he had tried to he obtained a divorce in hungary from edith fintor who apparently had been dead for several years at that point so he was really good at trying to cover his tracks and make things seem normal, including 
and if you're not sitting down, you may want to sit down because this really, this one really floored me. He employed actors to impersonate his family. He hired actors to impersonate his family. This is the level that he went to to try to cover his tracks. So he told these actors that they're in a film about his life. So basically, he was writing the screenplay. They just had to go and pretend to be his family for this movie that they're in. This, they're rehearsing for this movie about his life. So he would actually take them to his family in Hungary and introduce them and say, here's my family. Um, now go ahead and write back to me and tell me about how you met my family. And so they would send a postcard or whatever and say, hey, it was nice to meet your, you know, it was two girls and a boy. It was nice to meet your daughters and son or, you know, it was nice to meet your family. So apparently these actors never suspected anything was wrong because they really thought it was a rehearsal for this movie about his life. I just cannot get over that he would hire actors and that he had that. I mean, you know, other serial killers have written letters. You know, like I talked in the last, a recent episode about Gordon Stewart Northcott that would write letters that were supposedly from his victims. And H.H. Holmes would also write letters from the victims to their families to try to throw people off their path. But I don't know of any other serial killer that actually hired people to play their victims to throw them off the track. Throughout the trial, he said that the allegedly dead were actually alive and he's, quote, in contact with them through angels. I don't know how that helps, because if they're alive, what, I mean, I guess angels could still f- talk to him about them. I guess angels can still talk, but usually you'd think that angels would be talking to dead people for you, and I don't know, maybe not. Maybe angels are just helping him out everywhere with the alive and the dead. What do I know? When asked why he couldn't find the missing family members, he said, look, that's not up to me to prove to you. That's up to you to figure out where they are. But when I'm free... I'll go see them. They'll come. They'll come find me. (laughs) In Agnes's closing statement, she said, and I quote, I had no way out. I was completely in his grip. March 6, 2002, Pondy was sentenced to life in prison, convicted on six counts of first-degree murder and three counts of rape. Agnes got 21 years for five counts of participation in the activities. The police thought that Pondy was also responsible for the disappearance of multiple orphan refugees. So remember the Club Yidnap? That charitable organization that he formed to help orphans, some of them disappeared. He probably killed a bunch of orphans. What the fuck, Pastor Pandy, is going on here? They say he's a humanitarian. Instead of having the human fund, he has the inhuman fund. Sorry, I had to throw another Seinfeld reference in. It happens. They also suspect that Agnes is responsible for the disappearance of a 12-year-old girl whose mother was romantically involved with Pondy, but none of that was ever proven. Agnes was released June 14, 2010, after serving 13 years. Andras Pondy died on December 23, 2013, at age 86. He died of natural causes. Some of the nicknames were the Diabolical Pastor, Father Bluebeard, Side note, I've spoke about Bluebeard before. It's a dude who used to kill his wives or was known for killing a lot of his wives. So, there you go. The family killer, Pastor Diabolique, which is actually just another fancy way of saying the diabolical pastor. In addition to what was happening with Mark Dutroux and then them discovering Andres Pondy, there was another unknown serial killer running around south southwest Belgium who was had cut up at least five bodies and dumped them along roads and rivers. They discovered three women in freezers of a Lebanese restaurant in Brussels. So there was a lot going on in poor Belgium that year, that time period. I can't imagine how insane that must have been. And no wonder they were going crazy on the government that all this shit was happening and it was crazy. Dogs and cats were living together. Now, I feel like... I probably haven't expressed enough empathy for Agnes because I got into the, you know, the ba-ba-ba-ba-ba of this happened and this happened and this happened. And I did go into a little bit about why she might have killed her mother. And so I just really want to reiterate that kind of like I mentioned Gordon Stewart Northcott, how he forced his nephew to help him kill. And his nephew was about 
13 or so, if I remember right, when he was introduced to Gordon and to all that horror. And as a child, it's it's harder to work through that stuff and to protect yourself and to handle that kind of thing and to get away from that kind of situation. So she's in that exact same boat. If he started raping her at 13, then n- no wonder she was entrenched. And I think in some ways when they would use the verbiage, like, out of jealousy, she killed Tymea. And, you know, it, it's easier to think, well, she confessed that she killed. She did this out of jealousy. It's easier to think that, well, maybe she was okay with it after all. But it's important to keep in mind, and I'm glad that most articles just kind of, like I said, it was just statement of fact. She killed this. She said this. And there wasn't a whole lot of how she felt about it or how it tore up, except for that one line where her last thing line of the trial was, I couldn't get out. So there you can actually see the human element to what she went through. And I'm kind of pissed off that there are no books about this. Okay, I lied. I think there's one book, but it's in a different language that I don't know how to speak. So I tried to see if there's a translation and it sucks because I couldn't find it. I really want someone to research the fuck out of this and write a good book. Because I want... I don't know. Because, I mean, she's still alive. She was released, well, I guess 10 years ago now. But it didn't say she was dead. So she's still around. You could interview her. Somebody go interview her. I mean, Andres is dead. But it looks like he has some other kids. I think people might talk. I just feel like people need to write books on Mark Dutroux and Andres Pondy so we can know more. And we will never know everything. We will never have all the details. But it would just be nice to have some more things to fill in the gaps. And who knows, maybe Mark Dutroux, one of his victims that got free, she wrote a book. That's That was the book that I used as a reference. But maybe Agnes could write a book. Although I understand maybe she don't want to. And she wants to let move forward from that shit. So I get that too. Maybe it's just not meant to be. But anybody who knows people to write and are good at writing serial killer books, get them on it. I actually thought about emailing, finding Harold Schechter. Because he's one of one of the dudes that writes that's really good that I like. He does serial killer stuff. He's awesome. I'm going to ask him to do it. So maybe if we all bug him, <laughs> he, will, he will do it. And the thing is, it's recent. It's from like the 70s and 80s. So it's not that far back. So it shouldn't be, it should be a little easier to find some stuff, right? And that's my rant. So we covered the Hart brothers, who might have been cousins. And they killed all kinds of people. And then Andres Pondy, who forced his daughter to have sex with him and help kill family members. So it's a case where you have one group of people, the Hart brothers that seem to enjoy killing, and they work together to do their killing. And then we have another case like Gordon Stewart Northcott and his nephew Sanford Clark, where Andres Pondy had an unwilling assistant and his daughter Agnes. The next episode will be about killer cousins. It will include uh, David Allen Gore and Fred Waterfield. I will also cover the Hillside Stranglers, Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono. I don't know why I struggle saying that name so much, but I do. Make sure to stay tuned. You can get more information at murderlabmedia.com. You can find me on iTunes and Google Play. You can find me on your favorite podcast app with the RSS feed. That is listed on the website, which is murderlabmedia.com. Thank you for entering the lab. Fuck you, I'm going to do what I want to do.